Doggy Boogie says there's trouble close at hand. You better pay attention now, cause I'm the Boogeyman. Greetings from the Pumpkin Patch, and welcome, Halloweeniacs, to the Jack Lantern Press podcast on the Weird Network, where we discuss monsters and Halloween. My name is Michael Piccarella. And my name's Tom Piccarella. Tonight's episode horror writer Richard Chismar. <laughs> What you're hearing there is Oogie Boogie's song from the 1993 film The Nightmare Before Christmas, which really has nothing to do with our guest this evening other than the fact that his new book is called Chasing the Boogeyman, and it comes out today, or it's out already. Um, And I don't know about you, Tom, but uh, I'm pretty excited about uh, that book because it's been described as the Wonder Years meets Silence of the Lambs, which just seems cool to me. Oh, yeah. And, and and what I wanted to what I wanted to say too, um, you know that we, I kind of already you know did, but for our listeners, you know we we we're doing the intro and the the outro to to this podcast. We had already recorded it, but you know after talking with Richard, I gotta say that I didn't I didn't realize I guess in preparation I didn't realize just how much work he did. Uh, how many books he's published, how many things he's been involved with. But man, I, the more I dove in to to the things he's accomplished, the more I was like in, engaged in in the interview with him. Um, and I was I was just going crazy on on his website. and uh, and really, I mean, if people definitely after they listen to this, definitely go check out his his website and and get his book because i i just think this guy has a lot of accomplishments and a lot of things that I, that are really horror related and i think everybody would be all over so yeah i definitely was excited about about interviewing him yeah and and while chasing the boogeyman his new book is kind of the news angle this evening tom and i were particularly excited about this interview with mr chismar because he's one of the editors of one of our favorite books October Dreams, a celebration of Halloween. So October Dreams was published back in 2000, and it's a Halloween anthology with stories and memories of Halloween from the likes of Dean Koontz, Ray Bradbury, Richard Lehman, William F. Nolan, Jack Ketchum, David B. Silva, and and many others. But Tom and I read from this book every year when we start thinking about Halloween and uh, so, yeah, we were pretty excited to be able to talk to uh, to Mr. Chismar um, just because this book, um, which we've talked about a lot on this show. If you if you're a regular listener, we bring it up all the time. Yeah, we always talk about this book because it's it's one of my favorites for sure. Well, one of our favorites yeah, for sure. Definitely. So, yeah, so our guest tonight, for those who don't know, uh, Richard Chismar is a New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Amazon, and Publishers Weekly best-selling author. He is the co-author with Stephen King of the best-selling novella, Gwendy's Button Box, and he's the founder-publisher of Cemetery Dance Magazine and the Cemetery Dance Publications book imprint. He has edited more than 35 anthologies, and his short fiction has appeared in dozens of publications. He's won the World Fantasy, or sorry, he's won two World Fantasy Awards, four International Horror Guild Awards, and the HWA's Board of Trustees Award. 
Chismar has also written screenplays and teleplays for United Artists, Sony Screen Gems, Lionsgate, Showtime, NBC, and others. He has adapted the works of many best-selling authors, including Stephen King and Bentley Little. So on this last Friday the 13th, Tom and I talked to Mr. Chismar about his origins, Halloween, Cemetery Dance, Chasing the Boogeyman, and of course, October Dreams with some cool news related to October Dreams that I don't want to share right now, but if you listen in, you will hear what that cool news is. So anything, Tom, that you want to add before we get to this interview with Richard? Nope, I say we jump right in. All right, Mr. Chismar, welcome to the Jack-O-Lantern Press podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's so cool to have you on this show. And what's really cool is that at the beginning of our interviews, Tom and I usually like to ask our guests uh, to share a favorite Halloween memory, since this show is about monsters and Halloween. And that idea actually comes from the book that you edited, October Dreams, there's uh, throughout the book, as you know, there are the Halloween memories. And that's like one of our favorite parts of that book. Mine too. <laughs> so, so yeah. So uh, do you have a favorite Halloween memory that you can share with us? Um, you know, what's interesting is, is my favorite Halloween memories. Um, and, and I mean, I, and Halloween is, has always been, you know, right up there for me. It's always been, you know, a night, I, well, an entire day, an entire month that I look forward to October. Um, but my favorite Halloween memories, probably once I had two boys of my own and, uh, just being able to go out trick-or-treating with them and scaring them and scaring their friends and, uh, Halloween kind of became a big event at our house. Uh, um, you know, once we had children and, and we would, uh, you know, my wife would throw on a bunch of food, a big, big pot of spaghetti and meatballs and salad and and we would have a bunch of friends over and and they'd bring their kids and even if they didn't have kids we kind of just congregated at our house and uh yeah went out in packs uh until they were old enough to go by themselves and then we just stayed home and 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 pigged out and waited till they got back so we could uh eat their candy but yeah i, I mean not, a, <laughs> not the most exciting answer you know no uh haunted houses or or you know supernatural events for me just uh you know, it, it just being able to pass down my love for Halloween to uh, to my two sons. That's that's definitely my favorite. Nice. Yeah, I love that. I, I think um, there's not enough of that. Although if you in reading the October Dreams book, there are a lot of memories that just relate to family and and, you know, passing down of traditions or you know moving on to new traditions. So, you know, that's definitely the stuff that resonates with me a lot, especially yeah. as I get older and my son gets older and uh, yeah, that's, that's the good stuff for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that the, the Halloween memories, I always wondered if, uh, you know, writers are known for kind of taking poetic license and, and lying through their teeth at times. And I always <laughs> wondered how many of those uh, Halloween memories were, you know, spot on accurate and how many were just, oh, heck, you know, Rich asked me to do a memory and, and nothing's coming to mind. So I'm going to make something up, but it doesn't <laughs> right. matter either way. They were wonderful. And I, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that you guys kind of picked that book out of the, uh, stack because October dreams, whenever, whenever people ask me, you know, what, uh, what's the favorite anthology that you've ever edited out of the 30 or 40 that I've done? Um, my answer is always October dreams. So it's, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because, 
along when we when I first got this book, uh, I was in the Tri Cities in Washington State, and I just walked into a to a Hastings, and I went in there and I was looking through the horror books, and this cover caught my eye, and I I started you know flipping through it, and I I just couldn't even believe the amount of just huge authors that were in here. And I, so I started reading, you know, just one of the first stories, uh, you know, while I was sitting in there and I remember calling my brother up immediately and saying, Holy cow, you, you have got to check this book out, like go look for it. And, and then we both just got hooked. And I mean, every single year I yeah. open this book up and read, read these stories. And one of, one of the, my favorite ones is the black pumpkin one. Yeah. Uh, by Coons. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I read that one and I read uh The Santa of Halloween by Richard Lehman every yeah, year. Yeah, that was good too. And then yeah. I skip around, I'll read like various ones. A lot of times I stick to the memories because it just brings there's like a nostalgia and a cool Halloween feel that I get out of it to really just get me in the mood for Halloween. I mean, there's just no other book like it. I've bought other Halloween story anthologies and none of them are even close to as good. Well, thanks. Yeah, that, that's what that was our goal, you know, with Bob Morris is, is I wanted to do the the ultimate Halloween, you know, book. And that's why it was like, you know, we were able to get a lot of, uh, you know, the, a lot of the classic guys like Bradbury and and uh, Koontz and some of them because they had Halloween, uh, you know, reprints and, and some of them weren't really widely known. Um, and then I was surprised that we were able to, to just, you know, practically you know no one turned us down Stephen King you know passed on it and and you know I found out later he's just not a big Halloween fan because of how he was always put under a microscope on that night and uh um you know people kind of drove him crazy but yeah oh and, wow and then the memory, I didn't even know that that's interesting yeah he used to do a big thing at his house and 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 you know give out candy and all that but I think as as his fame grew it just uh you know, became more of a pain in the butt. And uh, I read this, I've, I've never had the discussion with him, but uh, I, I read it later um, in an interview somewhere. Um, and I think just people, you know, demanding more of his time and that kind of thing. So they, I, I think eventually they just started, you know, going out of town or going to dinner on Halloween night. So they weren't home. Um, yeah, it was bad. probably more of like an expectation that people have just because he writes, you know, horror books. It's like, oh, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, he does all this crazy stuff on that day. It just means he writes horror books. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and and I think he, I think he, he, you know, joined in on the fun in the beginning. And like I said, he kind of celebrated it with people and, and the whole thing. I, I, I still, I've still, I've seen a picture somewhere of the whole family dressed up and handing out candy on the porch, but I, those days are long gone. And, and it's interesting because he's, I, I don't believe he's ever written a Halloween story. Oh yeah. I never even really thought about that. Yeah. You're yeah, right. Neither did I. That's interesting. Cause it, if it he is... had, I would have, I would have abs absolutely begged for the reprint, but yeah, <laughs> there was nothing. It, it is fun. I used to be a newspaper reporter and you know, when you get something like Halloween, you're like, okay, so what story am I going to do? And there I wrote for a paper that was right near the original poltergeist house. And oh, so cool. I was trying to get the guy that lived there to just, you know, talk to me um, about the house. It was the original guy that was there when they shot the film there. And he was like, 
no, I, you know, I, I'm not interested in this at all. I have numerous people. This was probably 10 years ago. Right. And he was like, still to this day, multiple people come to his door. Just yeah, butt sure. bugging him. <laughs> yeah, no, us Halloween, uh, us Halloween freaks are pretty hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, basically, so so in a nutshell, or rather a pumpkin shell, who are you? What's your origin story? Where you come from? How did you come to be? Oh boy, um, who am I, Rich Chismar? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I started a magazine called Cemetery Dance when I was 20, 21, 22. I was a senior in college and uh, I had been selling some of my own short fiction. And, and, you know, I always say I was young and dumb and full of energy and, and no fear. So I decided, hey, I'm going to start my own magazine. And uh, that very quickly, within a matter of years, led to publishing books. You know, and I, I was doing horror, mystery, suspense, uh, you know, uh, thriller fiction, crime fiction, that kind of thing. Just, you know, the stuff that I loved to read myself and that I was trying to sell, you know, my own short stories. And hey, uh, that, you were that, a that, journalism major. I think I read or heard somewhere. I was. I was. I, I started. I, I had a long tour in college of numerous colleges. Uh, I was I was more <laughs> of a lacrosse player. Uh, my first three years of college than I was a student. Um, and then I get injured. And that's what kind of uh, led me back. You know, I, I had always written stories when I was younger, loved Stephen King as a teenager, um, you know, and, and but it all that kind of took a backseat to lacrosse and girls and, you know, parties and, and all that stuff. Um, um, but I got injured my junior year. And uh, it was right when uh, Stephen King's it came out in hardcover and wow. I picked it up at the bookstore and, you know, I was kind of lost, didn't know what, you know, what was next for me. Cause my identity was kind of as a, you know, a student athlete. Um, and I read that book and it just kind of reminded me and it, it opened a door and it reminded me of, of, you know, what my kind of original dreams were. And within a couple of weeks, I was writing for the uh, college newspaper and then I transferred to the University of Maryland and graduated from their journalism program. Nice. And are you you're from Maryland? I am. I grew up in a in a little town called uh, Edgewood. It's about half an hour north of Baltimore. Um, you know, a little working class suburb. And you know, we moved there. My dad was Air Force, so my I'm the youngest of five. So my 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 siblings moved around a lot. I, I was, you know, we moved to Edgewood when I was four. So I, I actually, you know, stuck in one place for, for most of my life. So I'm just, just curious, do you have uh, like, what got you into like horror movies and scary stories and Halloween? Um, besides just the way my brain was kind of wired and, and warped, you know, I was always that kid who, you know, I was big into, the, you know, the imagination. I, I, you know, I was a normal outside kid, you know, uh, playing wiffle ball, playing football, uh, riding my bike, skateboard, all that. But man, if there was, you know, back then pre VCR and, and certainly pre, uh, you know, good cable channels, if, if there, you know, if you're my age, you know what I'm talking about because they would advertise something coming on and you would like write it down because you didn't want to miss it because you might not see it for another year or two. Yeah. Um, we used so, to get, get the TV guide and go through the, the yes. circle. Yes, in. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that was me. Anytime like a great Western, you know, or a great scary movie or, you know, one of those disaster movies back then, you know, whether it was 
Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno, or the Swarm, you know, that, those kind of things, you know, I was in, I was, I was like, guys, I got to go. I'd go home and I'd watch it. And, um, you know, if it was on late at night, I'd start bargaining with my parents early to, to make sure I was allowed to stay up. Um, and then the horror stuff, you know, we used to have like Saturday afternoon, like creature double features. And yeah, that, that used to piss my friends off because I, I was gone for four hours. Um, but eventually <laughs> I'd kind of suck them in. And it's just, like I said, it was just the way my brain was wired. I liked, you know, I liked having, uh, you know, my eyes open to these other worlds and, um, the, the scary stuff is just kind of naturally how I thought I was the kid, you know, out at night with my pack of friends who, you know, would start telling a scary story and they'd be like, just be quiet, rich, stop, just, shut <laughs> um, and, you know, and I would like look over my shoulder and pretend I saw something and scream and take off running. And they would be like, you know, I, the joke was my, my best friend, Jimmy Cavanaugh, who, who was a wonderful guy, still in touch with him. Um, he, he's actually plays a major role in, in my, latest book but uh he was not the most uh uh fleet afoot let's put it that way but anytime <laughs> i uh you know i scared him he would somehow manage to just blow by everybody oh, <laughs> and wow. leave us in the dust because he was because he was scared to death but yeah so that's where it was you know and it was twilight zone you know horror comics and then you know my family was a big family of readers so somewhere in there um, you know, my dad read a lot of crime and spy fiction and my mom was, you know, more into magazines and stuff, but my sisters read a little bit of everything and somewhere in there, you know, I was introduced to Stephen King and then th that was all she wrote. Very cool. nice. Yeah, so, so basically when you got out of college, you started up cemetery dance. Did you have, like, were you able to do that as a career, as a, as a way to make money or did you have to work a job at the same time? How did, how did that work um well i started it when i was a senior i started I, the very first issue of uh of cemetery dance was 48 pages and i i, I always like telling the story that it, the university of maryland uh, computer lab had a big sign next to the laser printer which said you know please do not print more than 15 pages at a time um you know because there were always people kind of queuing up behind you and, and waiting and my roommate and i um, who actually did the art for the first issue. He did all, well, not all, he did most of the interiors and he did the cover. Um, uh, my roommate and I, we, we went into the computer lab and we not only did we hit print on the entire issue, but we hit print on two copies of the entire issue. So 96 pages. <laughs> and we just beat it out of the computer lab and we came back like a half an hour later and uh, the line, it probably wasn't a half an hour, but we came back a short time later and the line was out the door and we're sitting there arguing who's going to go up to the laser printer and get the pages. And uh, unfortunately <laughs> it was my magazine. So I won. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, he and I still laugh about that when we see each other because uh, we're like, yeah, we, we started by breaking the rules from day one. But <laughs> so yeah, the first issue was published. I was still in school and then I graduated by the time the second issue came out. And so, no, I never got a job. I never even, you know, I had all my clippings from writing for uh, for the college paper and, and uh, a couple articles for the local county paper. And then I uh, I had one pay, uh, one article uh, about Earl Weaver, the Orioles manager, was printed in the Baltimore Sun. Um, so I had my clippings and you know, but I never, you know, I never sat down to do a resume and I never looked for a job. I just uh, worked my butt off for uh you know, on the magazine, just, you know, seven days a week for 
ridiculously long hours and um, um, just, you know, a lot of passion, a lot of energy. Fortunately, I was, you know, I was 22, you know, no, no family, no, no mortgage. You know, I, I liked it. I, I used to always in those early interviews say, I, you know, I finance Cemetery Dance on 22% interest because I used all those credit cards that they send to uh, college kids to, wow. uh, to finance the business in the beginning. And, and um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I made no money for a long time. Tax day was always the most depressing because, you know, you'd sit down and you'd figure out and I'm, I'm like, I'm making six cents an hour. Um, <laughs> That's uh, yeah, yeah, that would be a little depressing because I'm making six cents an hour and yeah. you're trying. The, yeah. the crazy like, part is, so your magazine obviously didn't take off right away or did it take off, you know, kind well, of you know right what, away? What I quickly learned again, you know, not the brightest bulb, but, but a good work ethic. <laughs> um, what I quickly learned is that the magazine business was just a horrible business. I mean, you know, it just the way they, the way that they operated were the, was the, pretty similar to the way they operated 50, 60 years ago. Um, there weren't a lot of changes. It was all definitely geared to the distributors. Um, the discounts they took were so deep. You would hear about, you know, well, you're going to get hit with returns. Well, most of the distributors didn't even return the product so you could resell it down the line. They just ripped off the cover and sent you the cover back. Some of them didn't even do that. They did it by affidavit, which, you know, you'd send them 2000 copies and you'd get a piece of paper back where they claim that, you know, 1200 of them didn't sell. And you're sitting there scratching your head going, you know, I guess I trust you, <laughs> but yeah. So the, the, the magazine business, I, th that's why I turned to books. You know, I had seen some small press books and, and I just, you know, I love the quality, the feel of the paper, you know, the smell of them, everything. And uh, so I, I turned to books, which was, you know, a much better profit margin, you know, if you were able to, 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 you know, lock into a good author who, who had, you know, positive sales. How, how long after you started the magazine, did you start the imprint? The first issue of the uh, magazine was December 88. And I think our first book, our first book was a, a crime collection by a guy named Ed Gorman and Dean Coons wrote the introduction. Uh, a great book. Um, we came out of the gate with quality and it sold decently. Um, and I believe that was two, two and a half years later. Um, so, so fairly quickly. So you um, still were able those first two and a half years, you still were able to like have food on the table. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is, is my, uh, my fiance at the time, and then we got married, uh, probably a year and a half in, she was going to graduate school for physical therapy. So, uh, which was a great profession, you know, you could get jobs anywhere. Um, so we always knew we'd, we'd be covered. But yeah, like those credit cards kept food on the table, um, you know, <laughs> a prosperous week or two, then her student loans. I, you know, our very first really successful ad was a half page ad in the last issue of Twilight Zone magazine. Um, wow. We paid for that from her student loan. You know, it wow. was either 600 or $800. You know, she had some cash left over and uh, we're like, yeah, let's just roll the dice. And it ended up being the, the last issue of, the, of Twilight Zone. So instead of sitting on the newsstands for two months, it, in many stores, it just sat on the newsstand until they all sold. So it actually had great legs for us. We sold hundreds of subscriptions and did well. But yeah, they, no, they were always, uh, I'm spilling dark secrets here. But I mean, we, you know, we knew that, uh, you know, some months would be would be really rough. And, and, you know, I would, you, you just gambled back then there was no internet, there was no email. So all the direct marketing was done via, uh, you know, direct mail. So I, I spent 
just so many hours folding and folding flyers, stuffing them in envelopes, putting on labels, stamps, buying mailing lists, trying, you know, and you, you would, you would spend the money for 3000, you know, stacks of flyers, envelopes, stamps, and, and the mailing lists, and you'd throw them in the mail and you would just pray that, you know, within a week, you'd start getting a big return on it. Because if you didn't, you're like, Oh crap. So yeah. Yeah, it, it was, all a good, you know, That's... those first 10 years were rough. Um, but then we started getting, you know, higher profile books, doing more of them, you know, kind of cementing our place in the market. And don't get me wrong, the magazine did well. You know, at one point we, when comic distributors still existed, instead of just one diamond, you know, big distributor, there was multiple. And we were able to get newsstand distribution because we had color covers. And, you know, Stephen King sent us an original story, which was used in like Cemetery Dance 14, I think. So we were, you know, we were doing well. And the magazine was kind of, you know, our average book that we were publishing was a limited edition of maybe 500, 750 copies. The magazine was, you know, was out there with 15 or 20,000 copies every time. So it, it was a great avenue for putting together a mailing list and a customer base. So, yeah, it you know, I mean, out. to be to be honest with you, I mean, uh, most of the stuff that I knew you by obviously was October Dreams and when I started looking further into you, you know, Mike was sending me, you know, some links and I, I was looking at the cemetery dance, you know, magazine. I'm probably going to subscribe to that. So you're going to have another subscriber here probably very soon, but I was looking at your, your bibliography here and I, I, the amount of work that you've done is impressive. Um, I, I did not realize you had done that amount of, of stuff as, as far as the books, even the movies and, and the different things. I was looking through the news where you have, you know, things in that are being uh, put on in Fangoria magazine. And I, it's just really cool that you've even made uh, some of the stories that that link to uh, Stephen King's uh, works. And right. well, thank you. Yeah. Now, I've been I've been fortunate. I mean, I, you know, I, I like I said, I. You know, I don't hesitate to say I worked my butt off because uh, that was certainly the key in the beginning. And I actually had a nice conversation with uh, a woman yesterday who, who has a magazine and, and uh, she kind of wanted some advice and, and things are so different now. So, you know, with online and, and the Internet and, and desktop publishing and all the stuff that really didn't exist or, or was certainly in its infancy back then as far as desktop publishing, you know, it's different. But so I kind of went back to the fundamentals and I'm just like, you know, it really does come down to you know, I had the passion, I had the energy, and I was in a position to take a lot of risks, you know, as opposed to, you know, if I had two kids at home, and I was paying a mortgage on a house, and we, uh, we had some freedom there. But but absolutely, there are lots of days accounting change from the car. And uh, I told her, you would periodically, you would get cash in envelopes from foreign customers, because they didn't want to go get a, you know, a bank check or an international, uh, you know, money order. So they would just send you cash wrapped up in some you know, inside uh, some blank paper or an order form. And that, that was that was always big time for us because, you know, we would get like $70 cash and we'd be like, all right, we're heading off to Chili's. This is a big night. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of, you know, 16, 18 hour days, seven days a week for, you know, and then I was actually diagnosed with cancer when I was 29 and it came back when I was 30 and I was fortunate to to kick it both times. And that kind of, you know, that kind of gave me a wake up call to slow down a little bit. I, I cut, I certainly cut it down by probably a third and then, uh, yeah, you know, so we, you're in remission now. Yeah. I mean, Oh, I've been yeah in remission for a long time. Well, I'm been, I've actually, once you hit 20 years in remission, you're just considered good to go. So nice. yeah. oh, nice. I, nice. I good, still man. celebrate. That's great. 
That's Thank great. You. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's, it was a long road, um, 30 plus years now. And, uh, you know, but I wake up every day, thankful and grateful. And, you know, I've been, I mean, face it, the kid who was running home to watch creature double features and, uh, you know, walking around with a Stephen King paperback in his back pocket, I've got to pretty much live a dream life doing what I, what I love to do. You know, yeah. As far, as far as how you met Stephen King, uh, how, how did that come about? Um, you know what, it goes hand in hand with what I told this, uh, this woman editor yesterday. I was like, I was like, okay, those first few years, I know you can't afford to give stuff away, but you can't afford not to, because you have to put, you know, your magazine in front of the people who inspired it and the people who you one day want to publish. So right from the beginning, I had, uh, I called it my VIP list. It was about a hundred writers, directors, artists, um, who I was just like, you know what? I know they're not going to buy cemetery dance. So I got to, I got to send it to them free. And, uh, and, and almost without exception, it, it was, it, it worked out. So that was a big part of my advice to her yesterday. And, and that's where Steve, I just always send it up to his office in Bangor. And by, by I think by year two, I, I was getting the occasional postcard saying, Hey, I really enjoyed it. And that kind of thing from, you know, from Steve or from his assistant. Um, so I just really, you know, as the years went on, I, I sent up everything we did, whether it was a magazine or a book or a chat book. And, uh, you know, at some point he gave us a really nice promotional blurb. Um, as I mentioned, he sent us an original story called Chattery Teeth for uh, issue 14. And it actually, I, I'm probably the only person who's ever had Stephen King sit in a slush pile for over a month. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, it didn't say Steve King on the envelope. It said Chuck Varell and it was from New York and I didn't recognize the name. So in my closet, it went on the floor. I had stacks of manuscripts and the order in which they came in and, at, the, at that time, I, I think I had two stacks and each one was about three or four foot high. And I got a postcard and it said, I'm Stephen King's agent. And about a month ago, I sent you an original manuscript that Steve would really love to see in your magazine. I'm just wondering if you've had a chance to look at it yet. So I, you know, I almost passed out. <laughs> I flew You're like, home. wait a minute here. Where, where, where is that? <laughs> yeah. I flew down the hallway and uh, dug it out. I read it sitting there on the floor. And I'll never forget, my wife and I went to an Oriole game that night. And, and I, I mean, I read it and then I contacted Chuck and, uh, and told him I loved it. Uh, you, you know, please thank Steve so much for me. I can't wait. I'll use it in the next issue. And we went to an Oriole game on a, on a high. You know, we probably bought an extra, you know, stadium dog and pretzel or whatever. And when I got home, there, we had messages on the answer machine. And one of them was from Stephen King thanking me for uh, taking his story. Um, oh. so I, I remember I saved that little cassette that was back in the days of those little micro cassettes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. like, I pulled that. I probably never listened to it again, but I'll be damned if I was, I'll be darned if I was going to, uh, you know, throw it away or erase it. So, yeah. And then it just kind of went from there, you know, uh, for anthologies, you know, we never connected on another original for, for probably a decade, but several times he let me use reprints and then somewhere around 2000, or the late nineties, uh, Marsha, his assistant at the time, she, she overnighted me a box and it was the manuscript for from a Buick eight. And she just said, Steve wants to know if you'd be interested in doing a limited edition. And that was the first book that we, that we did with King. And, and that led to many more and somewhere along the line, the business relationship turned into a friendship. You know, we started emailing and texting and talking about, you know, book, I mean, books and movies and, and not never business. I mean, never, 
you know, anything about the, the writing world or business. Um, but, uh, you know, books in general and films and, and baseball and our families and our dogs. And yeah, just, you know, a lot of, a lot of common interests and hung out at some baseball games, had some lunches and that kind of thing. I'd been invited to a few of, of his, you know, big parties and yeah, just, you know, so yeah, for, for, again, for the kid running around Edgewood with, with the tattered paperback in his pocket to one day be, be friends with the guy and, uh, and work with them, just, you know, dream come true stuff. Very nice. cool. All right. So, uh, your upcoming book, Chasing the Boogeyman, um, it's been described as the Wonder Years meets Silence of the Lambs, um, which like that totally hooked me. So can you tell us a little bit about what that book is about, how it came to be and how you're actually the main character of the story? <laughs> yeah. So weird. I, I, uh, I referenced uh, the town where I grew up earlier, Edgewood, Maryland. And um, <clears throat> like I said, it was a working class suburb, you know, it was, it was on the, it bordered a, a military base. So you had a lot of, uh, you know, you had a lot of families who were there for a number of years and then moved on to the, you know, when, when the parent was, uh, was transferred. Um, but you also have a lot, you also had a lot of retired uh, military, you know, who were still pretty young and had young kids. And uh, that's, my dad was retired Air Force working at the, at the military base at the airfield. And I grew up, you know, very much like a wonder years type of a, you know, suburb, you know, we, we did have the dark side, you know, we kind of had the wrong side of the tracks and all that, like, like most towns. Um, but as far as just, you know, it was, a, it was kind of that slice of Americana where, you know, every neighborhood has a haunted house and every neighborhood has a bully and, you know, kids run around in packs and, you know, they kicked the can wasn't just some like nostalgic, uh, you know, phrase, we really played it and we traded baseball cards and the whole thing. And it, it was a cool place to grow up. So I always knew I, I wanted to write a book set there. I've written many short stories that, that reference, uh, you know, Edgewood and, and the Creek and the weeping willow tree on my side yard. You know, there's a lot of me and, and a lot of my past in, in those stories, but I always figured I'd write a book and I always thought it would be a big fat, you know, scary horror book like uh, it or, you know, a Dan Simmons, uh, summer and night, you know, the coming of age type of thing. Um, but instead it just, it, I had this idea that I couldn't kind of push away, which was, you know, more of a, a thriller, you know, serial killer type of, uh, of a story that was meshed with this, uh, kind of golden hued, you know, nostalgic look at my childhood. And, um, so that's where chasing the boogeyman came from, you know, um, yeah, I'm so excited to read it. Like, it just sounds so cool. That idea. Of it was actually meshing. a movie producer who said, this is Wonder Years meet Silence of the Lambs. And I was like, you know what? That's really good. I'm going to write that down before I forget it. Um, <laughs> I, I always felt like October Dreams even. Like a lot of those stories were very much kind of Wonder Years-like because it, oh, the Wonder yeah, Years definitely. stories were always about like, loss of innocence or like a transition from, you know, being a trick-or-treater to not being a trick-or-treater. And that was, that's definitely one of the things that I love about that book and those types of stories is it had, there's something about looking back and transitioning from, you know, one, one. Like uh, going from a child to an adult. Yeah. 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 well, you, you just, you guys just hit the nail on the head because that's what chasing the boogeyman is. It's, it's, 
it's uh, you know, it, it talks about the loss of innocence. And once that happens, if you can ever get it back um, and not only for, for me as a young man, but for the entire town um, because these horrible things were happening. Um, and it's also about that transition because the, the time frame that the books takes place in is when I graduated from college, um, you know, like I mentioned, my fiance was, was just beginning graduate school for uh, physical therapy. And uh, we were engaged. We were going to be getting married, I think, in about 10 months um, from when I graduated. So instead of going and getting an apartment and, you know, spending money that we didn't have, uh, are using up those uh, those student loans, you know, she was going to go ahead and be at school. And I moved home to my parents' house for nine months uh, until the wedding. And it was just a really interesting dynamic to be right there, kind of, you know, you're, you're supposed to be on, you know, really past the threshold or just passing that threshold into adulthood. And um, here I was, I'm moving back into the house I grew up in, but also into the bedroom I grew up in. And you know, uh, looking out that window at the side yard where we played wiffle ball and marbles and, and uh, you know, threw snowballs at cars and the whole thing. And it was just this really, but here I was, you know, now a grown up supposedly working on this horror magazine, writing my make-believe horror stories and crime stories. So it was, it was just a, it was a time that was kind of ripe for not only looking back, but looking forward. And it was a, it was a really fertile time for, for my, for my imagination and my brain. Um, you know, doing that. And so that's, that, that, that's the nine month time period that the, that the novel is set in. And um, in reality, when I did go back and for the previous months, um, someone had been breaking into homes around Edgewood and the surrounding area. And he, he would, this was an unknown male assailant and he would break in at night, um, usually through an open window or door unlocked because um, it was a different time. And he would caress um, the hair or the arm or the leg of, of sleeping females. Oh, and wow. Woke, and once they woke up, boom, he was gone. He just took off. And uh, the, news, the local newspaper, the Harford County Aegis, they, they, they called him the Phantom Fondler, which you know, <laughs> we thought was kind of funny. But it, it, you can't help but giggle. But when That's I, creepy, well, yeah. Well, it's really creepy. But what's interesting is in my memory... And I have a pretty good memory. My friends just shake their head. They're like, you know, you were born to be a writer because you remember all this stuff. In my memory, it happened a half a dozen or so times because how, how could it happen more than that without this guy ever being caught? Well, in reality, when I went back and, and looked at, at, you know, did the research, it happened over 30 times. Wow. And he wow. was never caught until the 90s. He was arrested in Baltimore City for a different unrelated crime. And he admitted to all these break-ins and the evidence that the, that the police had matched. So they knew he was telling the truth. Wow. Um, but I remember being home and I remember people locking their doors, people buying deadbolts, people buying floodlights for their yards, people talking about buying guns. And it was just, you know, it felt like I was in a movie. Um, and that's what I remember about it. And I always remember because again, you know, here I am, the horror guy. This is the summer that Silence of the Lambs came out now. Um, I'm thinking constantly, what if, it, what if it escalates? What if it's, you know, this is bad enough, but what if it turns into something even darker? What if he hurts these women? What if he rapes them? Or worst of all, what if he kills them? So that's Chasing the Boogeyman is, is uh, essentially I'm there. Things worse than this are going on. You know, young, young girls are being, um, you know, killed. 
and I become part of the story. And, and that's kind of why I made myself this character. You know, the book is very autobiographical. You, you can read the book, you can learn about the Halloween parties that we used to throw at, at the house. Um, cool. You can learn about how I started Cemetery Dance and, and you know, where I sold my uh, initial short stories and, and the fact that my parents were, you know, were, were a whole lot cooler than they probably should have been with, you know, the 22 year old deadbeat were living at home and, and not going out and getting a job after spending, you know, five years in college. So yeah, it's, it's uh, a very personal, very uh, nostalgic look back mixed in with some real darkness. And, uh, and it's all set in a, in a true crime format at the end of each chapter, there's photographs, just, just like a true crime book, essentially, you're going to see the major players in the story, you're going to see crime scenes and the whole, the whole nine yards. And it's just the, the way that I felt the story wanted to be told. So that's, that's what I rolled with. Are these, these photographs, are they of the actual guy or? No, I mean, uh, I won't give too much away because it's, you know, it's all there at the end of the book. I wanted to Blair Witch this thing completely. I wanted to I wanted to pass this off as real. I had plans to have a 19, you know, 90s old-fashioned style website put up that had never been updated past you know, like <laughs> 1999. I had plans to plant fake newspaper articles online. My son is a filmmaker and he and I were going to make a documentary about this and uh and pass it off as real, kind of like Blair Witch did with their uh Blair Witch Project, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it looks it looks to me like I'm looking on on your website. I went over to Amazon, and it looks like this is coming out on Tuesday, August seventeenth, and the hardcover is seventeen ninety eight. It comes out Tuesday in audio, uh, ebook, and hardcover. It comes out in England on Tuesday, and then anyone uh, we know reading it for the audio version. Um, you know what? Uh, I'm trying to think. No one famous. No one super famous. They gave me a choice of like four or five different readers, all of which were wonderful. And I ended up picking a guy. My son knows who he is because he's voiced uh, a lot of video games, including some like really popular ones. Um, cool. cool. I'm not sure who he is. And he's done a ton of books. And I actually spoke with him on the phone and he he, he, he was great. He did his due diligence. You know, how do you pronounce this? How do you pronounce that? You know, did your dad talk like this? So. Yeah, it's just an interesting project and it's a weird project. I, I'm a behind the scenes guy. I don't get out much. I don't go to many conventions or, you know, book conferences, those kind of things. So to make myself the main character was, was an odd choice. And even my agent was, you know, a little skeptical at first, you know, she's like, you did what? Um, (laughs) She, she asked very quickly, if we get good offers on this, but they want it to be, you know, just some, you know, different narrator, are you open to that? And I said, well, it depends on their reasoning and, and what the offer is. I said, but sure, I'm open to listening. And she, uh, she read the book. She called me about a week later. She said, all right, you're not changing it. You won me over. It's great. You know, I, I it, it's really intimate and, you know, you, you've really kind of put yourself out there and I think it enriches the story. It doesn't distract at all. So that was the cool thing. I, you know, I didn't even tell her I was writing this book because I was afraid that uh, she, you know, would talk me out of it. <laughs> but it, it came very quickly and uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, writing about my childhood friends and uh, you know, my parents have been gone for, for a number of years now, but you know, for the several months it took me to write the book, they were alive again. And I, I was eating my mom's uh, you know, home cooking and, and talking with my dad out in the garage. So it, it was just a great project to uh, I'm glad I thought of it, even though uh, you know, it is strange. <laughs> That's good stuff. I I 
can't wait for it. Can't wait for it. Yeah, I'm going to get it for sure. Well, we had um, some questions from people from social media and we have like a little hotline people can call in and email. So a few questions people wanted us to ask you. Um, The Weird Network on Instagram asked, what made you choose Halloween of all holidays to do an anthology about? And I, I guess put another way, like, did you ever have or did you ever consider doing a horror anthology on other holidays um, like Al Antonio did an anthology called Book of Holidays, which is really cool. No, I wrote I wrote a lot of holiday related stories for uh, back then. There was a, a, a really prolific anthologist uh, named Marty Greenberg, Martin Greenberg, and he did a lot of books with Ed Gorman. And, you know, I, I wrote Cat Crimes. I wrote a Father's Day story. I wrote an Easter story. Um, Santa Claus or Santa Claus. I think it was a crime anthology. I wrote a uh, a Christmas story with a writer named Norman Partridge, but Halloween's just, you know, to me, you know, I, I, I would have no interest in, in editing an anthology, uh, of stories set on any other holiday than, uh, than Halloween. To me, it was just a, a, a no really, brainer. Yeah. It was a really <laughs> easy choice. I mean, I, I wish I had the time I would do it every, I, I would do one for every year. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, that kind of goes with to our next question from Janelle in Torrance, California. She sent us an email asking, uh, well, first, and we have this question too. October yeah, I was Dreams just going to say two. before we ask this, I'm actually curious on this as well. <laughs> yeah, it, um, October Dreams 2 is, is, if you go on Amazon, it's $230.80. Wow. <laughs> Is that ever going to be available again? And will there ever be an October Dreams 3? I would say an October Dreams 3 is probably 50-50. And yeah, I need to, uh, you know what? That's a really good point. I need to, to get my uh, rear-ending gear. And because um, my agent really only sells my own fiction. It, we we kind of made that deal from the very beginning that she, you know, she's too busy to, to deal with anthologies and, and those type of things. So oh, I really, man, those are my favorite. <laughs> I know, but I, you know what, that's something I can reach out myself to some editors, both, you know, in the, in the mass market and also in, in the smaller presses and, and just say, Hey, this book's really crying out for a, you know, a, a $19.99, you know, trade paperback, you know, and it's got oh, some, yeah. great, it's got I'll some buy that things. in a heartbeat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Same here. I mean, obviously I, I think you would probably have, quite a few people jump on board with that. I and mean, we pitched this book on almost every one of our podcasts that we, <laughs> we've, we've put, because uh, we love October Dreams. And when we saw that there was a second one, I don't know if I'm willing to spend $230 and <laughs> no, no, on it, but I definitely would buy it if it was a good price. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you shouldn't. But uh, um, the, uh, yeah, I'm writing myself a note right now because I, I know a few smaller publishers that um, absolutely would would jump on it. So the idea that they could publish some of these names involved for you know a paperback, I think they'll yeah they jump on it right away. And awesome. don't get me wrong, I would definitely jump on board of an October Dreams three as well. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. I uh, I mean, I would love to do it. It's it's yeah. I mean, the the best answer to that question is just you know Halloween for me is like going home. So absolutely you know uh, that was an easy choice for me and and hopefully i'll have time to do something down the road again awesome cool cool um so we had one of our show's favorite callers she called our hotline with a question hey guys it's jackie i just want to say i love the show and i'm super excited to listen to richard on your podcast i did have a question for him 
how does he find the inspiration or where does he find the inspiration to write all these weird stories? Um, you know, what's interesting is, and I mentioned Ed Gorman before I published this, you know, his, uh, he, he was the first book that we published. Um, I learned a really valuable lesson from Ed and, and actually anyone listening who, who, who is a big reader and wants to just read quality fiction of, of any genre, um, Ed Gorman, his last name is G-O-R-M-A-N. Um, someone asked me on, in a podcast last week if I could have dinner with, with one author, alive or dead. Um, I picked Ed. You know, he, uh, he was a, a mentor for me right out of the gate, a friend, a great writer. He wrote crime, mystery, suspense, uh, political thrillers, horror, um, westerns, um, cozy mysteries. He wrote everything um, under a variety of names and, and the best stuff under his own name. But uh, the point of this rambling thing is that in the beginning, I used to always try to write stories that kind of reinvented the wheel, you know, big plot stories, strikingly original, that kind of thing. And, and what I found is that most of those stories stunk. You know, they, they were not authentic. They were not, uh, you know, they, they didn't carry, uh, you know, some, the best way to put it is they didn't carry truth to them. And, and what I learned from reading Ed's fiction was that once you found that inspiration, whether it was you know, the story didn't have to invent the wheel. You could write about a, a retired hitman sitting on a bench outside of a Greyhound terminal and, and his, you know, uh, by chance meeting with a, with a mom who's, you know, a, a single mom and her child who's escaping town and, you know, from an abusive relationship. And you know what? It, you could write this quiet story that was five pages long and mostly dialogue. But if, if you found the right beat for it if you found the right you know truth and heart to that story it was so much better than the most intricately plotted you know um action story that i might try to make up and that's that's i learned that from reading ed's fiction is is whether it was about a particular person or a place or a moment in time if it was something that was really in your heart those were the stories that would that would resonate with readers and would help you kind of gather an audience and and I, I learned that you know like 10 years into the game and it's something I've always been grateful for. So that's kind of my answer is, you know, it, it could be anything. I could be driving down the street and I could see, you know, a woman who just looks at the end of her rope talking on, you know, an old fashioned payphone 10 years ago. And boom, the way my brain works is I would just like, I know why she's having the day she's having. And it's actually more than a day. It's, it's, her, it's her life. And so I'd sit down and I'd write a story about this anonymous woman who I saw talking on a payphone and somehow weave that into a suspense tale or a crime story. And, um, it wouldn't always be the most action packed, but it would be authentically me. And those are the stories I started selling to like Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and some of the better anthologies. So yeah, inspiration for me comes everywhere. Very cool. Um, okay, so we we do something at the end of our interviews, uh, kind of like uh, James Lipton from Inside the Actor Studio used to do like these short one word, like one sentence responses. Oh God. Have you ever, did you, have you ever seen that Inside the Actor Studio? Yeah, and I've done it. I've done it one other time, probably a good decade ago. And I was like, I'm like, okay, I'm convinced after that, I'm convinced everyone, you know, all the uh, psychologists and all the armchair psychologists, or, you know, whatever, they're all going to be like, okay, Chismar's a serial killer. <laughs> you know, okay, like, some of these can construe you as yeah, yeah this yeah. is gonna prove it once and for all so you're setting <laughs> me up here but i'm going along with it so all right here's the here's number one here what is your favorite monster uh and i gotta go kind of quick don't i no you don't have to i mean not 20 minutes or anything yeah no my favorite <laughs> I, I mean my I, I can't think about it too long but before they made me do one word answer so that was horrible but my favorite monster is probably you know, I, I, this, this is a 
probably not a good answer, but the human monsters, that's what I write about. I write, that's what the suburbs and it's, it, that stuff scared me from a really early age, you know, cause kids, kids are smarter than they get credit for and they see things and they know things that others don't. And that's kind of what chasing the boogeyman is a little bit about to look when I look back to my youth is we knew where the shortcuts were. We knew, you know, we knew who closed their drapes, who didn't, we knew, you know, which dumpsters held this, that we knew, you know, who in the neighborhood drank too much because their trash cans were always full of bottles. You know, you know, all that stuff, you know, who beats their kids because we're friends with those kids. Um, so I was always fascinated, repulsed, terrified of the human monster who kind of wore the mask of your next door neighbor, but was not a good dude. Um, that's an interesting answer. answer. That that's a good answer. answer. <laughs> that's what most of my short fiction was about. And, and uh, I'm a pretty cheerful, optimistic guy. Um, I'm a big kid, you know, and that's kind of how all my friends know me. And once they started reading my published work, they're like, Rich, what the heck? You know, <laughs> and I'm just like, you know what? I'm cursed, man. It's just, it's, I, I believe it's, you know, writers see and hear things a little differently. And, and that's how I saw and heard things. And, uh, but yeah, other than that, I love all the, all the classic monsters, man. I grew up, my older brother used to have, I used to watch the old Abbott Costello meets the mummy oh, and the vampire, Frankenstein, all those. And I have great fond memories. Just, just as long as you say Frankenstein meets the Wolfman was great. Yes. That's all we, that's all we care about. Yeah. No, I, mean, <laughs> our favorite. I, love that stuff. I love it. And, but yeah, but that's my answer. I'm sticking to it. All right. So if you were a monster, what would you be? Um, I'd be a vampire so I could fly, I guess. There you go. All right. If if you ever harnessed energy from lightning to create any of your, or have you ever harnessed energy from lightning to create any of your work? Hmm. No. I, I, well, you know what? Maybe subconsciously. I'm a big, you know, thunderstorms roll in. I, I'm the, you know, I was the old guy, even when I was like 12, who, who would always loved to go outside and watch thunderstorms roll in and see the lightning. And the, and when, when we were a kid, when the lights went out, that was a big event. I tried to tell my boys this recently. I'm like, you got to understand when we lost electricity, you know, back in the day, you, you never lost it for five minutes. It was always at least a couple hours. And, oh, yeah. and when the electricity went out, you know, if I was sitting there, you know, playing solitaire or looking at my baseball cards, you would just drop what you're doing and, you, you know, you would run outside and you're with your friends and it would automatically usually turn into a sleepover or something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, nice. there's, that's in Chasing the Boogeyman too. You know, my dad was a big tinker out in the garage in, in his workshop and uh, uh, very fond memories of, of, you know, we lived at the bottom of a hill on Hanson Road of, of standing in the driveway with my dad watching the storm blow over the hill and uh you know i talk about that in the book um so yeah I, I you know what it's a good question man i've never been asked that which is rare to come up to come upon a question you've never been asked and that's a good <laughs> one so sub, i'm gonna i'm gonna go with subconsciously yes i have okay have you ever tried to take over the world only when i was like you know 12 um <laughs> Definitely try to take over the world. Definitely went to sleep many nights believing that I had taken over the world. You know, I was the kid who would like tie a sheet on his back and jump off the roof. And I was a believer. Let's put it that way. I was a believer. <laughs> I was a believer. I, I, I am still proud to wear that on my sleeve. You know, you cannot convince me that Bigfoot might not exist. And talk about that in the book, too, by the way. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. So what do you do for evil in your spare time? Evil? Yeah. Um, I torment my sons. That's the biggest thing. I, <laughs> I told my oldest great. son. Yes. 
I told my oldest son yesterday who, who started doing yoga every day. We, we, we live on a, a, you know, a really pretty piece of property and we have a pond and, and uh, just, it's really nice. And, and he goes out by the pond every morning and, and after he works out and he does yoga and it's good, you know, he says it's not only good for his body, but his brain and he meditates and the whole thing. And uh, I told him yesterday, I said, I've decided to lay in wait for you after, you know, cause I see him, I usually see him coming back from, you know, walking back to the house after he meditates. And I said, I've decided I'm going to lay in wait for you and I'm going to blow all the peace that you've just, you know, garnered by, by doing your meditation and yoga routine. I'm going to just blow it right out the window because I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Or I'm going to attack you. Like, you know, with some, I'm going to spring out of the bush or I'm going to swing down from the porch and I'm just going to, you know, obliterate all of it. Um, so yeah, that's my evil. So I, you know, we're, we're pretty ruthless with each other. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm too boring to be evil. All right. Do you have any skeletons in your closet? I have a lot. I, I don't like politics. And if I, I again, I grew up in a Neither time. Do where, I. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in a time where where the politics thing comes from. I always joke and I'm like, you know, I should run for office. And all my friends and, and my wife and my kids, they just laugh. They're like, yeah, you would last a week. Um but yeah, no, I, uh, too many skeletons. We grew up in a time without cell phones and, and a time when the police just caught you and let you go and, and, and with a warning and, and yeah, no, I, my boys, when, when my friends and I get together, they hear the stories and, and they're like, dad, are these true? And I'm like, these are absolutely true. And, and, and again, <laughs> some, an interviewer asked me a couple of weeks ago, you know, how much of the stories from your life and your past in chasing the boogeyman are true? And I said, that they're true. I, I said, I've been asked by several people, including, and I won't give it away, but after you've read it, drop me an email and I'll tell you what the two most asked questions are. Did this really happen? And the answer is absolutely yes. <laughs> cool, cool. We did a lot of crazy stuff. And, and the interview said, did, did you, were you tempted to change it? And I said, no, those memories were too sacred to change. And they were also too good. You know, people already don't believe them. So why would I embellish them? Okay, so what is your favorite shade of blood and guts favorite shade of blood and guts you know what? i'm not a big blood and guts guy i'm like i said i'm a believer so you know so my no oldest gore son, huh no no big time i will watch it um my oldest son billy he I, he was just telling someone oh when i did my signing i did a virtual signing and he helped me and and he talked about it um he's like you know he's never been into the you know the really gory stuff i mean he'll watch them but like the uh you like know Green Inferno. or something Green Inferno, you know, the, but what's interesting is he and I are the believers. So when we watch a scary movie, we're usually, we're usually very close for a father and a, and a grown up son who just graduated from college. You know, we're usually sitting very close, often under the same blanket, terrified. Whereas if, you know, we're watching a ball game, he's on the other side of the room, you know, usually throwing stuff at me. Um, whereas my youngest son, he is not a believer and he, you know, he rarely gets scared. He often thinks the things that scare us are, are silly. Um, and we just tell him it's because his, his imagination isn't as big as ours, but yeah. So my favorite color gore. Uh, yeah. Usually the, the kind that's dried and, and not too uh, prevalent. <laughs> uh, how about what's your favorite type of victim? Oh. Well, I, yeah, I guess you can be the, the kind that gets away. I guess that, you can still be a victim and, and escape. You can still, you can still get away. That's true. Yeah. So that's, that's my answer. You know, I mean, 
that's the thing. This book, Boogeyman, you know, I killed some really good people. And uh, <laughs> and that was, I had so much fun writing the book that it, it felt just wrong at times because, it, it, like I said, it was it, times it almost felt self-indulgent writing about my family and my friends and just wonderful memories and 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 a place that, you know, I, I don't, I no longer live there, but I'll always consider Edgewood my hometown. All right. What kind of scream or cry of terror do you love the most? Love, man. I'm a dad now, so I don't like any scream of terror, but we've got, like I said, we own some, we own a nice little plot of land. And, and sometimes my wife got freaked out about a month ago because every night for a while she heard like these fox screeches and they were terrifying. They sounded human and they sounded in pain. Uh, and I think they were mating or calling. It was a mating call. But yeah, I, I would say the, the, the kind of screams that, that aren't human, but uh, are still, you know, terrifying. And uh, what type of scream or cry of terror do you love least? My own. Um, I have like really uh, vivid nightmares, uh, really vivid dreams. Fortunately, not often nightmares. Uh, I dream like complete narratives, like many movies, often more than one in the same night. I'll, be, I'll wake up exhausted because I'm like, I was being, you know, honored at some dinner, but I was a singer. And then I was at home and there was, you know, my dad and I made an electric skateboard out of a cardboard box and some old wires and just bizarre stuff, but it's complete narratives. So when I have a scary dream, I will often wake up and it sounds like I'm hyperventilating. And I only know that because it's my wife shaking my shoulder saying, you're having a nightmare, you're having a nightmare. But I can usually pick that that, that's the moment that, you know, I'm going, I'm I'm going forward. I'm venturing forward because I have no choice and it's pitch dark and I know the bad guys there or the monsters there. I, I know it, but I have no choice but to go forward. And it's that, that hyperventilating, uh, you know, almost I don't have the air to scream is when that hand or when that claw finally reaches out and touch touches me or I open the door and it's there. And, and unfortunately they go away pretty quickly, you know, from my, from my waking memory, they're gone. But yeah, she, she, she wakes me up a, probably once a month, you know, the old, <laughs> you're having a nightmare, Rich. And I'm like, God. <laughs> All right. One last question of the lightning round here. What is your favorite torture device? You know, I'll say this, that, that magic workshop of my father's garage that, that in the book I compare to the sorcerer's, you know, I, I kind of can the old Disney. Um, oh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. And uh, because it was just a magical place, he, you know, he had his tools lined up and he had wire, he had jars and boxes filled with these things. And on each side of this long, narrow homemade workbench, he had two large vice, vices. And of course, my friends and I would do the old, let's see how much you can take. Put your fingers in there. Put your hand in there. Um, so yeah, that, that's my favorite because, you know, of course, since then, since those days of innocence, I've seen, you know, movies where the, the vice kept going on heads and legs and arms and, you know, and eyeballs popping out of the head as it's compressed. And so I'm going to say the vices that, uh, that used to be on my, my father's workbench. There you go. All right. Nice. Well, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Anything new that you're working on or something that maybe we didn't talk about that you wanted to tell fans or people that, you know, maybe don't know who you are that would give them a good look into what you do? Um, no, you know what? I'm just going to be a complete uh, carnival barker here and just say, you know what? 
buy buy pick up a copy of Chasing the Bogeyman if you can, because there's more of me in that book than anything I've ever done. So you know, you kind of want to know what makes me tick. It's uh, a lot of it's in there, and uh, a lot of it is. You know, people have asked me what percentage is real, what percentage is, is make believe. And, uh, you know, the stuff that's about me is 95% real. So, yeah, that's, that would be the best way to kind of get that look. Awesome. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to it. Um, like Tom was saying, I think we're both going to subscribe to Cemetery, uh, Cemetery Dance. So, hopefully, you're, you continue doing that. I don't know how profitable yeah, you know, it is or we're going to continue for a while. I mean, it's been, you know, I, we've had, you know, several points over the years where it's been, you know, should we keep going? And I just never have the heart to, to stop, you know, it's, cool. just, you know, it's always been there. So I think we need to get back on a more regular schedule. And, and that's something after, after I take a break from promoting this book so much and get to work on the next one, I can, uh, you know, kind of get back to that side of things. Can't wait. Can't wait. Very cool. Well, well thanks. Guys. Yeah, thank thank you. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it was great talking with you, hearing some more stories about you, and uh, we look forward to reading the new book and and the new stuff that you have coming down the pike. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. All right, so that was Mr. Richard Chismar. For more about Richard, you can follow him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also check out the Richard Chismar fan page set up by his readers, which we'll link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, anything else, Tom, that you wanted to uh, reflect about that interview uh, before we call it a night? Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to, to give a big thanks again to Richard. Uh, you know, uh, somebody with his accomplishments... Um, I mean, at the very beginning of the show, we went through all of the awards that he's done. I talked about, you know, all of his different books, the movies. I mean, the guy literally is friends with Stephen King and he jumped on our show and, and interviewed, you know, with us and, you know, we're not, we're not a big, you know, huge show. We'd like to be obviously. And that's why we're, we're bringing, you know, these bigger interview, um, interviews out. But I mean, this guy was the most down to earth uh, I, I just, with his accomplishments, uh, he was pretty cool just to take the time. He was a real, uh, just nice guy in general. He isn't like gloating about all his awards. He didn't go off and how great he was or anything like that, even though the guy obviously is, is great at what he does. And it's probably one of the reasons why he's accomplished the amount of things he's accomplished. So definite kudos to him. It was fun talking to him fun seeing uh uh you know we we were talking um you know on on uh, zoom when we were recording so we got to you know meet each other and everything so it was just really good he's a real stand-up guy and definitely everybody should jump on his website check out his work subscribe to his work and uh, get his new book that's coming out um that's available right now so yeah definitely check it out and thanks again to him coming on uh, on here yeah, and also uh, not sure if, if everyone noticed, but the, the news that we teased at the beginning of the show was October Dreams 2, where he was saying that he's going to try and get it reprinted, which would be really cool um, because that's yeah. a book that I've wanted to get for so long and it's just not been available. I don't even know how long it was available, but uh, yeah, if he can if he could somehow get that out there again uh, that would be so that dang would awesome. be sweet 
And I mean, honestly, if he could get that out there, that would be, you know, a second book that I can have during Halloween time that I can kind of flip-flop, go back and forth between, you know, October Dreams 1 and 2. And then also, he he didn't shy away from the fact that October Dreams 3 could be possible. So that would even be neat to have that come out uh, as have well. Three of them, yeah. Definitely. So, all right. Anything else, Tom, before we call it a night? No, I think that'll do it. All right. Well, that will do it for this episode of the Jack Lantern Press Podcast. For more about the Monster Universe and the Monster Revolution that's upon us, go to jackolanternpress.com. You can also call our pumpkin hotline and leave us a message with any questions, suggestions, or your impressions of the show at 323-761-0276. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a rating and a review. It's a big help for the podcast, and we'd greatly appreciate it. And don't forget to check out our book, Transylvania Traveler, as we get deeper and deeper into the Halloween season. It's, it's definitely the perfect thing to have. Um, to get you into Halloween. So you can find that, again, Transylvania Traveler at jackolanternpress.com. Now to take us out, we usually like to play a clip from a Halloween Sounds album that Tom and I had as kids. Tonight we're going to play something from the Wade Denning classic 1974 album, Monster Mash, Sounds of Terror. We just thought that in honor of Richard's new book, Chasing the Boogeyman, about a serial killer... Uh, we thought we'd play a clip featuring one of the original serial killers, this one, Jack the Ripper. So thanks again for joining us this evening, and we'll meet up again soon in the Pumpkin Patch. In Victorian London, an evil killer prowled the foggy nights. He stalked the cobblestone streets of old London town, his long black cloak concealing long razor-sharp knives to slash unsuspecting victims. Never caught by the bobbies of Scotland Yard, this mad fiend was known to the terrified inhabitants as Jack the Ripper. <laughs>